I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. This is Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Cunog Davis, who was both applied Cymru MP and an Assembly member in the first term of the National Assembly. And uh, Cynog, uh recently celebrated his 80th birthday and has made a major contribution to Welsh political life and uh, is one of the leading figures uh, of Plaid Cymru and has been for many years. But first of all, Cynog, if I could ask you about your, uh, your roots, because I think you're a Swansea boy, aren't you, essentially? Well, I was born in Triboth, just outside Swansea, but we moved as non-conformist ministers' families did uh, to Aberaeron on the west coast of Wales when I was, I think, four months old. Uh, and then, of course, we moved back to Neath. I lived in the Neath Valley uh, from uh, age 16 on and, att- and attended Neath Boys Grammar School. So, and that kind of combination of... Uh, West Coast and Valleys, actually, yes. So, uh, when you started your studies, what were you studying at university? At the university? Well, I, I studied English. I went to Aberystwyth, actually, fully intending to study Welsh, but I was disappointed by the nature of the course, and so I decided to do English instead, although, of course, I did my first year uh, in Welsh as well. And you became uh, an English teacher yes. uh, in secondary schools. And yes. uh, I know from people that I've spoken to, including Hleki uh, Schenkin, who's the chief executive of uh, uh, Literature Wales, that mm-hmm. um, you were very highly regarded as an English teacher, uh, Canog. And I think there are some people who know you as um, an advocate of the Welsh language yes. uh, and uh, the fact that you've been steeped in that all your life. That's been a major concern of yours who might find it a bit odd that you actually are quite an expert on English literature, but uh, I believe that your Shakespeare courses were particularly uh, good, so I'm told. Well, I'm not an expert in English literature, but of course I loved literature and loved Shakespeare, and teaching sixth form, I got immersed into uh, criticism of Shakespeare and understanding of that, and uh, I tried to convey my enthusiasm to my pupils, and I think maybe with some success. Although, during my first years as a teacher, the last thing I wanted to to be was a teacher. I wanted to get out of the profession, and I wasn't very good, I'm afraid, for those first five years, but then I decided I was going to have to be a teacher, so I better make a good job of it. And then I spent uh, many years uh, contented and working hard in the classroom, 32 years altogether. Because many people will not really be aware so much of your uh, teaching career mm-hmm. uh, because you became very well known subsequently as a as applied Cymru politician. But <coughs> in your teaching career, were you involved with politics at that time as well? Oh yes, I was involved in activist politics. You know, that's what I've been really all my life is a kind of activist politician. Uh, from an early age, I was. Um, I have to say, converted to the Applied Cymru cause in the mid-50s. And then I attended Applied Cymru conference and summer school in 1959 in St. I remember, where I met people um, who, um, you know, were very impressive individuals and who were engrossed in the nationalist cause. And from that moment on, I was really hooked 
I suppose. And I've been a political activist all my life, partly uh, in Plaid Cymru, partly as a canvasser, and then, of course, as a candidate. Um, and involved in policy development and that kind of thing, but partly uh, as well as a Welsh language activist. So I was a member of, well, I was I, I was chair of the first central committee of the Welsh Language Society, uh, and then I was involved with that kind of activity off and on. I think as a number of people were, you know, off and on moving to and fro from. The Welsh Language Society from Cymdeithas on the Aeth on the one hand to play Cymru on the other. Um, uh, as one felt um, uh, moved to do and uh, uh, as one felt the importance of these different aspects of the national movement, as we like to call it. Are you a first language Welsh speaker? Well, yes and no. Um, uh, my mother tongue, in the literal sense, is English. I spoke English to my mother, but in our home I spoke, we spoke Welsh to my father. Um, my sister and I speak English to each other. But of course we were brought up uh, in the chapel uh, in, and in what was then an overwhelmingly uh, Welsh-speaking community in Aberaeron. But within that speak that community, of course, the chapel community was entirely uh, Welsh-speaking, and so I was steeped, immersed in the discourse of the chapel uh, and of Christianity through the medium of Welsh all those years. So, and and then certainly uh, with the passage of time, and when I got married to Linos, who was Welsh-speaking. Of course, I think it's fair to say that I am now a first language Welsh speaker and have been for a very long time, and it's the language of my family, of course. And of course, the autobiography that you wrote was uh, titled Son of a Preacher. Yes. So, what sort of impact did your father have on your development, would you say? Well, I, I think it was enormous, actually. Um, I, my father, as part of this uh, organization, this movement, uh, Welsh Calvinistic Methodism, by the way he was no kind of Calvinist, he was a very liberal theologian. Um, what did that give me? Well, I mean I, I remain a, a, a kind of committed Christian, although I don't believe in the existence of a supernatural God. I'm a kind of atheist in that uh, sense of the word, but I uh, remain committed to Christianity because I think it's a, um, a um, an immeasurably valuable um, uh, 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 worldview, if you like. It's uh, I think it's uh, an extremely rich uh, uh, inheritance that we need to develop, and, and so I remain committed to that. So that's part of it. The other thing, of course, is that. Uh, um, being brought up in the chapel and being brought up in the manse meant that you were involved all the time in some kind of high-level ethical discourse. You know, we were always talking about um, what what's right and what's wrong. So that was fundamental, and politics impinged on it because my father was a committed socialist. Uh, he was a Labour Party supporter, but sort of leaning towards Plaid Cymru. Um, and I think he'd have made the shift from Labour to Plaid Cymru had there been an active Plaid Cymru organisation in Caridigion in those days. But he was an active supporter, I remember, 
of the Labour Party candidate in Kerrigan in 1951, it would have been, I think, Ewan uh, Morgan, cousin to Eliston Morgan, by the way. So my father was a socialist, and that, you know, um, and he was, his brothers were coal miners, he came from that industrial background, so that influenced me profoundly as well. Would you describe yourself as a socialist, Kenneth? Well, yes, I think so. Um, I, I'm, I've always tried to be a pragmatic person, social democrat, I think most people would say, is what I am. But a socialist in the sense that I believe that the economy and the society ought to be organised, and I dare to say it, for the many, not not the few, um, for, for the benefit of... Um, of the society as a whole, uh, and in that sense, yes, I would say that I remain a socialist. Yeah. So, in terms of your activity within uh, Comdeithas Eithe, yeah, um, did you uh, become uh, engaged in what many would regard as criminal activity? Well, illegal activity, of course. Yes, that's right. That was part of the part of the. Um, uh, part of the intention, actually, was to use illegal activity, and I think there was a kind of subtext to what Kmethas uh, Reith was doing, ostensibly and officially. Of course, it was uh, illegal activity in order to achieve official status for the Welsh language. That was what we were enjoined to do by Saunders Lewis in his radio lecture. Uh, but I think, uh, actually, what we were trying to do as well was to sort of um, <clears throat> was to radicalise uh, Welsh political life and particularly radicalise uh, the nationalist movement which we saw as having become um, too institutional and too respectable under the leadership of Gwynfor Evans. You know, we were, as a generation, many of us, some more than others, were quite critical actually of Gwynfor Evans and I think the establishment of Gwynfor um, was a, was a was a reaction uh, to that concern. But I've got to say about myself that uh, I found a constant tension between uh, wanting to be involved in illegal activity on the one hand and family responsibilities on the other hand because I was married quite early and quite, had children quite early and there were, <laughs> there were issues of that kind to consider. So I was not at the kind of cutting edge of illegal activity but I ended up in the cells a couple of times. And What's the naughtiest thing you got up to? Well, I don't know. Years afterwards, actually, I suppose it was switching off the um, television mast at Carmel as part of the, uh, uh, the S4C, Pirates Language Television campaign. That was the most serious, and that's when I ended up actually in the cells and finding myself in court and facing a very, very hefty fine, actually, as well as a result of that. It was during the time when I was chair of the Central Committee, as we called it, Pushkar Kanolog. It was later uh, renamed the Senate, the Senes of Kondethas Riaith. It was Central Committee in my time. Um, that was when we initiated the, the occupation of post offices and then, of course, the campaign for the Welsh road fund licence. And that was really when Kondethas Riaith really actually got moving as a serious um, organisation prepared uh, to break the law. How effective was that campaign? Well, I think uh, campaigns uh, cumulatively over the years have been highly effective. You bear in mind that we ran the post office campaign because post office refused to put the words of a post or 30 
on the facades of their buildings. It was as simple as that. They refused to do that. There was no such possibility, they said. Uh, well, all that has changed, doesn't it? And, and the official status of the Welsh language has been completely transformed over the years. And we're now in a situation where government, Welsh government, is committed not only to the survival but to the growth of the Welsh language. I think this is a you know, remarkable transformation that's occurred. And I don't think it would have happened at all had it not been for the activities of Cymdeithas Oriaeth. Because this is the paradox, isn't it? Because very often social change is affected by people who are prepared to break the law. I mean, that's what happened in hmm. South Africa. It's what happened in Northern Ireland, actually. Um, yeah. uh, and is that an unfortunate state of affairs? Does that indicate that the conventional political process is not really sufficient to ensure that significant social change can take place? Well, it's part of the human condition, I think, isn't it? Uh, that um, vested interests uh, don't want to be challenged and that people don't wish the familiar pattern of their lives to be destabilised. So it's natural, therefore, that they resist demands for radical change. And if there was ever a demand for a radical change, it was for raising the status of the Welsh language to a really significant and serious level. That was not on the agenda for people in the 1950s, I think. Um, so that's what leads to people uh, adopting um, illegal methods of activity. By the way, the model for us, of course, was the American um, black civil rights movement. I remember a meeting to discuss what kind of action we were going to take uh, in relation to the post office. And I remember Gareth Miles saying, well, we'll do what Martin Luther King did, we'll occupy occupation. So we will occupy a post office, we will enter the post office and sit down and refuse to move and see what happens after that. And we did that three times uh, at the outset uh, of Cymdeithas uh, Soriaeth's illegal activity. Trevechan Bridge was a one-off actually, which happened earlier and was then... And then what happened on that occasion? Well, I wasn't there. I wasn't in... Uh, I wasn't in, in that protest. I was busy farming at that time, trying to farm. My wife was there. But uh, after that, there was a hiatus, you see, because uh, I suspended its campaigning, suspended its illegal campaigning, while the David Hughes Parry report on the legal status of the Welsh language was being uh, conducted. Uh, but then we decided that uh, the Hughes Parry report was, um, was published and at the same time we were saying, well, we're not going to wait any longer. And in any case, what the report recommended was nowhere near what we wanted to see. So we re recommenced the pro protestation, the, 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 pro the protest activity. Um, at that time, was it 1964? I'm hopeless at dates, I'm afraid. And where do you see the position of a language now, Kinnock? I think it's radically different, and I thought for a very long time, actually, that we need a new approach to um, to policy on the Welsh language. The emphasis all along has been on official status. It's been on language rights, the rights of Welsh speakers. Uh, and I think that the language movement has found itself entrenched 
into a preoccupation with those things uh, when uh, we need a, a radical shift actually uh, towards active promotion of the language, encouragement, creative activity that is aimed at making the Welsh language an exciting, radical uh, and creative thing to be involved with. And it's my conviction that Cymdeithas Soriaithas failed actually, adequately anyway, to shift from its preoccupation with status to a more active uh, encouragement uh, and ad advocacy role. And that's why I've become involved actually uh, in the organisation called Devodol Iriaith. And we find ourselves, I think now, at a quite extraordinary um, juncture, actually. I mean, the language language is under greater challenge than ever in many ways, uh, because, of course, we're moving further and further away from the monoglot Welsh-speaking community, uh, which used to exist, and where the Welsh language developed, of course, that's how it is. We're, you know, we're moving into a much more bilingual and fluid situation, and this is a challenge for the Welsh language, and there's demographic change, of course. The Welsh-speaking areas are no longer, uh, um, you know, totally Welsh-speaking areas. Um, so the challenges are greater. But on the other hand, we have a Welsh government, and this is a Labour Welsh government, which is extraordinary, actually stating that their intention is to radically, significantly increase the number of Welsh speakers, not only that, but to actually actively uh, increase the use of the Welsh language, the use of the Welsh language, not just its, not just, uh, not, uh, not just knowledge of the, uh, uh, of the language, but its active use in all aspects of life. This is a, you know, we're at that juncture now, and the government is proposing, the Welsh government is proposing to set up uh, new organisational arrangements to promote this, and I think we should welcome this, and we should work with this, and of course press for adequate resources and that kind of thing, to make sure that this new enterprise, because that's what it is, is a success. You mentioned the fact that the monoglot Welsh communities no longer really exist. Well, monoglot Welsh speakers no longer exist. I mean, there are no people now who can't speak English. I mean, until the, until the early 20th century, there was a, a mass of people in Wales who could not speak English. And I can remember people um, uh, in my, my youth even, whose English was very limited. Uh, you know, that's, we're in a completely different situation. As you move away from that, then, of course, the position of the language, uh, in, in some ways, is, well, it, it's more problematic, of course. Um, but on the other hand, <laughs> it generates a new kind of confidence as well. Because the monoglot Welsh speaker was all the time constantly aware of the disadvantage of being a monoglot Welsh speaker. He was subordinate, or he and she were, were subordinate, and in many ways denigrated at best uh, regarded with condescension and often regarded with derision. So as you move out of monoglottism into bilingualism, people uh, are able to be more relaxed about the fact that they speak Welsh. They can see it as a badge of pride uh, as well. But of course, 
they're constantly facing a choice. In this situation, which language am I going to use? Is it Welsh or English? At one time, uh, you were involved with this Midyad uh, Adver, were you? Um, I was briefly, yes. That's the organisation that wanted to have um, areas that were uh, essentially Welsh language areas. Yes. I was, I was involved with Midyad Adver in the first place because it was concerned uh, with... It was concerned specifically with housing, actually. Uh, it was concerned, uh, uh, its intention was to purchase and renovate property and to let that property then to local people. And local people in those days would have been Welsh speaking people. So that seemed to me to be a very important thing to do at that time because Welsh people, local people, were being priced out of the market. Uh, and then Adver began to shift to become something uh, more uh, more comprehensive under the leadership of Emil Llewellyn. Uh, it became a movement setting itself up actually in competition with Cymdeithas Sariaith and uh, emphasising uh, the importance of well-speaking areas. And I felt at the time to the exclusion of the vision of the whole of Wales as being the home of the Welsh language. Um, so I had a great deal of sympathy with uh, Adver's uh, idea of establishing um, areas where the Welsh language would be, do- would be dominant and where policies would pers- be pursued to retain its dominance. And I don't say that those kinds of ideas are irrelevant even today. Uh, but but uh, I... I um, I moved out of the organisation when it became that kind of organisation rather than being a specific body concerned with housing. And then I actually became involved um, in, in following years in the Housing Association movement, which was a kind of development of that, actually. Cymdeithas Tai Gwyneth, Cymdeithas Tai Dyffryn I was involved in creating, and I um, was an active member of that for many years and chair of it for many years. That became Cymdeithas Tai Cantref and was part of the chain, uh, you might say, of Welsh-speaking housing associations. Those, those organisations operated entirely through the Welsh language. They now operate bilingually. So there we are again. Now we move on to a, um, a topic which is very sensitive, uh, Kenog, um, which relates to the question of the in-migration of English speakers into Welsh areas. Now, mm. there are those who are wholly opposed to that. And uh, going back quite a few years now, there was a Plaid Cymru councillor called Simon Glynn who made some comments that were seized on by people like uh, Glynis Kinnock uh, from the Labour Party to suggest that mm. there was some kind of uh, racism going on here. Mm. Yeah. Um, how would you characterise your perspective on this particular issue? Well, I think it should be possible to uh, discuss openly the issues that arise from, let's call it, demographic change. Large numbers of English people have moved into what used to be um, uh, strongly well-speaking areas, and there's no doubt at all that that destabilises the position of the Welsh language. And so uh, responding to that in the way that Simon Glynn did respond back in the early 2000s was, I think, understandable. 
the question is what you can constructively do about this and my feeling is not much actually the thing that we should actively be involved in dealing with is the out-migration of people from well-speaking areas from Wales as a whole actually Wales um, has throughout my lifetime suffered from a massive hemorrhage of, of, uh, of talent of educated young people who've almost regarded it as automatic that they would move certainly out of the western regions of Wales uh, but also out of Wales altogether um, this, this I think ought to be um, a key preoccupation in economic development policy um, and I think the emphasis should be on that rather than the problematic aspects of in-migration which you really can't do all that much about. At the margins something can be done I dare say through planning policy but it's at the margins. Now I was involved in debates about this and uh, this was a very controversial issue uh, in the 1970s into the 1980s as well but what I felt as indeed Gwynevere Evans strongly felt was that we had to create something constructive out of these new cultural, linguistic and demographic circumstances, put it like that. Large numbers of the English people that moved into Wales did so, and if they didn't do so in the first place, they soon came to feel um, uh, an affinity and a warmth and an affection for the communities that they moved into and they wanted to serve them, they wanted to contribute to them. So what I felt was very, very important was that we encourage that and that we bring together these two communities uh, in, a, in a project, if you like, for the reconstruction of Wales and the reconstruction particularly of the western regions of Wales. Sometimes it's called rural Wales, but it's not all rural, of course, is it? Never has been entirely rural. That's a misnomer, be that as it may. Now, the important thing was to try to construct a, a creative project out of this. And that is what we tried to do in Ceredigion, I think. It's fair to say, when we set up the alliance between Plaid Cymru on the one hand and the Green Party on the other, because the Green Party was primarily made up of uh, people who'd moved into Wales. And we did bring them together into a really very vibrant and enthusiastic uh, uh, project that led to my election as MP for Ceredigion in 1992. That's, that was one of the most exciting things I'd been involved in in my life and I felt that it was, it was constructive and positive and, and could lead to something. Because what was remarkable about that result... Uh, was that in the previous general election you'd stood and you came fourth. I'd, I'd stood twice. Um, I spent ten years getting elected uh, and more actually. Uh, I was, I think, ad adopted as 
candidate for Plaid Cymru in uh, 1981. The first election I stood was 1983. Uh, I ended up on 6,000 votes, which quite encouraged me, but I was still fourth. Um, uh, and then uh, 1987, the vote went up to 8,000, but I was still fourth. Um, and then in 1992, uh, we leapt, collectively we leapt from fourth to first, and so I was elected. Yeah. So what did you have to do to construct that coalition with the Green Party? What, what were the discussions that took place and how did it all come about? Yeah, I think I should say that the foundations for that victory had been laid before the Green Party came on the scene, or at least before uh, before we set up the alliance. I mean, Plaid Cymru had worked very, very, very hard over a long period of time in Kennedy and to establish its credibility. And during the 1980s, uh, Plaid Cymru uh, played a leading role in some of the campaigns of that period, uh, particularly the crisis in agriculture, the crisis in the milk industry, it was a really serious crisis and we, were, uh, we, we led the campaigning on that and we achieved some, I think we achieved some uh, quite useful things. So there were practical achievements that we could point to. Um, uh, so that was one thing, we were actually uh, actively involved, you wouldn't think so maybe, but uh, Kennedy and Plaid Company people were actually involved in the support for the miners' strike. So there was, there was we were actually constructing a kind of alliance on the left in Caradigan, and there were many Labour Party members in Caradigan who were advocating um, uh, some kind of pact with Plaid Cymru. Actually, that never, never materialised. But the fact that it was being discussed, I think, uh, was significant, and that was that was laying the foundation for the change that was to come. And then, um, in the late 1980s. Um, it was decided that representatives of the Green Party be invited to the Plaid Cymru conference. Uh, I think I'd, I'd been involved, I'd, I'd followed the Green Agenda right from its inception, right from the time when Blueprint for, for Survival was published back in the early 1970s. I'd followed that debate and became convinced, I'd become absolutely convinced, as I remain convinced actually, of the need for radical, radical economic change in order uh, for life on this planet to be sustainable. <laughs> That's rather grandiose. Um, so I, I followed the Green Agenda, I was committed to it, seriously committed to it. So this is not, this is not merely tactical. And then this decision was made to invite Green Party representatives to the Plaid Cymru Conference, and there was a decision, I think, made that we should explore the possibility of, uh, of, of pacts between Plaid Cymru and the Greens, and a number uh, of constituencies actually made arrangements to this effect. I think uh, most of them were in the southeast here, in Monmouthshire, uh, and in uh, east East Morganshire, uh, and then we made these arrangements in Caradigan. So we had to get an agreement on this through um, the national executive of Plaid Cymru, and the Greens had to get it through their uh, Welsh executive or whatever they they had uh, in those days. So that was the first hurdle we had to cross. And then, of course, we had to convince our own people in Caradigan. And I remember holding a series of branch meetings at which I and the prospective Green Party candidate, Tim Foster, spoke 
we went to these branch meetings and we were able to convince people that this was the right thing to do and that it could actually lead to victory. And we had some polling evidence, some informal polling evidence that we had conducted uh, to confirm that. So it, it wasn't easily done, Martin. It involved an enormous amount of work, I've got to say. Um, but it succeeded. Uh, and, uh, you know, pe- people like David Wigley and Yermin Jones, I know, were highly suspicious initially of this idea. But um, as always the case with David Wigley, he takes some persuading. But once he's been persuaded, then his commitment is total. Uh, and so he was very helpful, actually. Uh, in driving this forward. Uh, and, you know, we became aware of the enthusiastic momentum behind this campaign uh, in, uh, in 1990, 91, and then into 1992. And, you know, we were swept to victory with a 3,000 majority and a doubling of the vote. You're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. When you got elected, what did you want to achieve in Westminster and how would you measure your achievements over the years that you were there? Well, I think in the first place that the 1992 victory put wind in the sails of Plaid Cymru. I think it gave Plaid Cymru credibility. Uh, uh, initial credibility and uh, I think you know it it was uh, quite seriously helpful in the growth of Plaid Cymru that we saw then throughout the 1990s at local level and at the the national level as well it was seen in election results and it was seen particularly of course in 1999 with the stunning performance of Plaid Cymru in the National Assembly election so I think it it helped to do that Um, and I was asked I remember being asked to, to speak in Plaid Cymru events about how we did it, you know, because everybody wanted to replicate it then, didn't they? They wanted, wanted to achieve the same <laughs> transformative uh, change in the party's fortunes. I, I've got to say that, you know, when I went to Parliament, I was seriously overawed, seriously overawed. Uh, I, I, I found the first months in Parliament uh, really daunting. Uh, because uh, because there were these big expectations, you know, I I, I had been the kind of instrument, hadn't I? I had been the sort of uh, uh, dare I say it uh, icon <laughs> uh, of of this movement, and there were big expectations of me, and I had to work incredibly hard, and there were all kinds of challenges. Uh, so what was I what was I trying to achieve? Well, I I I wanted to take the green agenda seriously. And it was, it was an important juncture, actually, because uh, a, a month or two after I was elected, there was the fundamentally, actually, important development of the what was called the Earth Summit, the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development, and said, was it, in Rio de Janeiro in June 1992, I didn't go there, but I was involved in parliamentary activity to uh, make sure that the UK line at that conference would be positive and would be uh, would be would be radical. I was involved in that kind of activity, and then following that, uh, I was involved in um, groups of people and and working with organisations in Parliament and outside Parliament. 
to move the, that process forward, move the, the what we call the Rio mm. process forward, and they were they were uh, they were repeated. They were, they were uh, conference of the party meetings, COPs as they were called, for biodiversity, for climate change, and so on. I was involved in parliamentary activity to support that kind of that kind of stuff. Uh, so I, I never let up on that. Uh, but at the same time, of course, this was the decade in which we saw a chance to establish a Welsh Parliament, for goodness sake. So those were the, those were the dual, that was the dual track, as it were, of my activities. Uh, and, and, you know, that meant a lot of very, very hard work. And at the same time, you know, people were wanting me to go to everywhere in Wales to bump up Plaid Cymru activity and that kind of thing. And there were, the Green Party was inviting me to go here, there and everywhere as well to address meetings. So it was, it was very hard work, but it was, uh, it was exciting as well. And then at the time when it became clear that there was going to be a National Assembly, yes. and obviously there was the firstly uh, landslide victory for the Labour Party in the 97 election, yes. uh, when of course you were re-elected yes. in uh, and then there was the referendum that took place in the September of that year, which... Uh, resulted in a narrow victory for mm -hmm. the Yes uh, mm -hmm. campaign. At that time, when it became clear that the National Assembly was going to be established, what did you hope that it would be able to achieve? I think it would be worth saying a word about the referendum first itself, because there were, there was, uh, there were some delicate decisions and uh, crucial decisions we made in relation to the way in which Plaid Cymru would respond to the referendum itself and participate in the referendum because our big fear, Plaid Cymru's big fear, was that the same thing would happen as it happened in 1979 uh, when um, a, a Labour Party policy um, for devolved government, which was hopelessly inadequate in Plaid Cymru's view, might actually be scuppered by Labour Party members themselves. That's what happened in 79. It was a Labour Party policy, the establishment of devolved government, but Labour Party people campaigned against their own party policy. And so Plaid Cymru was held, left holding the baby and it was seriously damaged as a result when the referendum went the wrong way. There were people in Plaid Cymru who feared in 1997 that the same thing would happen again. I was absolutely convinced that we had to support a yes vote in the referendum, even though we knew that the pattern of devolved on the model of devolved government that Labour were advocating was uh, utterly inadequate, it was absurdly inadequate, actually, and so different from what they were offering in Scotland. So we, you know, the, the, it was decided in a series of, I thought, quite skillful moves that we would move towards a position where we're actually actively advocating and organising for a yes vote. I think we did that very well and it worked, obviously. And had we not done what we did, there would not have been a yes vote and there would not have been devolved government. I'm fairly confident of that. Well then, of course, uh, the big issue was what the Assembly would actually do. And Yael Min jones asked me uh, at that time to become policy director for Plaid Cymru. Um, and my feeling was that we should do everything. We should um, bend over backwards uh, 
um, and be completely committed to making this inadequate model of devolved government successful, that it would actually work. So what I did was uh, go through the policy areas, consider what um, changes could be introduced with this limited model of devolved government in those areas that would then contribute to the process of success and actually building, as you might say, building the Welsh nation, strengthening the Welsh nation so that it would become a dynamic process as Ron Davis clearly wanted it to be a dynamic uh, process. So we produced, uh, I think it was a total of 16 policy documents uh, that, uh, that would then be the foundation for what we thought the Assembly would be able to do. The big disappointment actually was that Labour entered that uh, Assembly with um, with no kind of policy programme at all. Labour had been preoccupied with internecine uh, struggles uh, and disagreements of various kinds. But in any case, uh, Welsh Labour had never regarded itself, and I'm, I'm quoting from the mouth of the Labour uh, AM here, actually, during the first four years, I think I can name it, was Val Feld, who actually told Phil Williams, you need to remember, Phil, said Val Feld, that the Labour Party in Wales has never been a policy-developing organisation. It's a vo- it's an election-winning organisation. That's all it's for. And that we could see that clearly. So, you know, what, what I was trying to do in those first years was to actually... Uh, inject into the culture of the assembly uh, ideas that would um, uh, that would be specific to Wales ideas that would actually develop uh, um, political decisions uh, of a Welsh kind and so on so that is that is how I saw it but we soon then of course found ourselves preoccupied with further constitutional development, didn't we? Um, to be fair, the Liberal Democrats uh, were instrumental in establishing the Richard Commission, uh, which reported and which recommended the establishment of a proper Welsh Parliament and the Scottish model. And I'm afraid I spent a great deal of my time after that, because I left the Assembly in 2003, in that area of activity. How to bring about constitutional change that we that so that we would actually uh, develop a satisfactory model of self-government for Wales within the UK framework of course that was the only thing feasible um, and I think the big sadness really about devolved government in Wales is that um, that so much of our time has been taken up by that and that um, relatively little time has gone into actually developing a programme for government. And that's partly because of the lack of powers, but it's partly also, I think, because of a lack of political will or political vision. And I think, to be be fair, I think Plaid Company has had that political vision all along, actually, and has found it very, very frustrating uh, that it hasn't been able to properly implement that strategic political vision for the transformation of Wales. Um, 
Yeah, so that's where we're at. Why did you decide to stand down in 2003, Kanog? Oh, I can give you, I can give the, I can give you the official version, uh, as it were. Um, <laughs> the official version went something like this. Uh, that if I was going to remain in the Assembly, it would be because I was 65, so I was of retiring age. Uh, if I was going to stay in the Assembly, it would be because I'd want to be in government. I'd want to actually... But I worked out that because I was an additional member, for Plaid Committee to be in government, it would have to gain additional constituencies in the, in the Mid and West region. And in that case, I wouldn't have been elected uh, on the list. Uh, as an additional member. So there was no point. So I stood down. That's the official reason. What's the unofficial reason? <laughs> the unofficial reason is that I'd, I'd, you know, I'd been involved in incessant activist politics for so long that I wanted a rest. Uh, I, uh, I remember my wife telling me when I was telling her in the 1990s that it wouldn't always be like this that um, the time would come when uh, I would be released <laughs> from the pressures of uh, political life. And I remember her telling me, you can't live your life in blocks, she said. So I decided that uh, when um, uh, that in 2003 came, that that block was going to an end and I was going to have a block of doing something else in my life. Uh, and I've lived until I lived until the age of eighty. You know, I've been uh, enormously privileged. I mean, I I, I never uh, I always felt actually throughout the time when I was in elected politics that I was in many ways unfitted for the task, not up to it. Why did you think that? Because uh, whereas I'm quite good at communication, I suppose, and I'm quite good at developing high-level uh, big ideas, I'm absolutely hopeless at detail. Um, I, um, you, you put a table of statistics in front of me and my head spins. I can't do sums, basically. And things like that, of course, are really the bread and butter of policy and politics, aren't they? The devil is in the detail, is what they always say, isn't it? And I was absolutely hopeless in the details. So I was in this constant state of agonizing about trying to understand things. And uh, that, that made me very often quite unhappy. But you need the visionaries as well. Well, there we are. Well, I hope I made a contribution in, at that level. But I'm just explaining to you now. Um, some of the factors that made me decide at 65 that uh, I... Uh, I wanted to leave elected politics, yes. Let's uh, talk for a little while about the state of Plaid Cymru. It's a party which has, on a number of occasions, and you've alluded to the result in 1999 when there mm -hmm. were 17 Assembly members elected yes. for Plaid Cymru, and that's the best result that the party's ever had mm -hmm. uh, in uh, the... Mm -hmm. um, elections since the Assembly was established. What is it, do you think, that has prevented it from reaching the kind of support that the SNP has achieved in Scotland? Because it's a, 
figure that is often quoted, uh, mm. I've seen it often quoted, that in fact in 1999, Plaid Cymru had a higher uh, percentage of support, very Indeed. slightly, but a higher percentage of support than the SNP. Yeah. Yeah, the SNP has gone on to become the dominant party in Scotland, whereas uh, Plaid Cymru um, remains um, considerably behind the mm. Labour Party and, in, and indeed the Conservative Party now. I mean, that's such a huge question that I, I, I'm not sure that I'm uh, qualified uh, to come to a judgment on it. I think we need to recognise first, you know, that there were a number of things that worked uh, in Plaid Cymru's favour in 1999. You know, there were the internal divisions in Labour itself. Those were helpful to Plaid Cymru. And there was a sense too, of course, this is the main thing, I think, that 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 being that um, got self-government now, I, I prefer to use the term self-government to devolved government, so it's limited self-government we had, uh, that the best people to um, to to run it, as it were, uh, were Plaid Cymru, because it was, this was Plaid Cymru's baby, really, wasn't it? That's what people felt. Devolved government, self-government for Wales, was Plaid Cymru's idea, not Labour's idea. Labour had sort of delivered it, fair enough, but it wasn't their idea. This is really, this is how I think people saw it. This was Plaid Cymru. Uh, had driven this. So let's give them a chance now. Let's see what they can do. But of course, Plaid Cymru didn't get into a position of actually forming a government. I think Plaid Cymru actually, I think that Plaid Cymru should have formed a coalition government with Labour at that time. I think we should have offered that, whether Labour would have, would have accepted it. I don't know. I think we should have offered it, and I think we should have offered it in good faith. Uh, but we didn't. Um, uh, and so it fell, of course, to the Liberal Democrats to form to form um, a coalition. Right, but the question of why why Plaid Company hasn't succeeded, I think I, I think you know, in the first place that um, Welsh Welsh political life is infinitely less developed than Scottish political life. Scotland, after all, was an independent country until the early 18th century. Uh, it had. It had its own legal system, and it had its own um, um, uh, uh, structures of government. It had the Scottish office since 1870 or something, didn't it? So it had a well-developed civic political culture of its own, uh, whereas uh, Wales's civic political culture was infinitely less developed. Um, and so I think the SNP uh, was able to... Uh, ride on that uh, highly developed sense of Scottishness um, uh, in its in its activities in the, in the 2000s then which led to its uh, its success later um, um, Wales, Welsh political life is infinitely more complicated it's less it's less developed in the in the civic sense uh, but I've always said, and I'm sure it's true, uh, that in many ways Wales is much more distinctive, much more different uh, from England than Scotland is. Uh, and the language is part of that, of course. The uh, uh, Welsh nationalism has been more ethnic in, 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 in the sense, in, in, in the proper, in, in the, in the non-pejorative sense of the word ethnic, being based on a sense of cultural identity, uh, 
that that, that makes it uh, you know uh, uh, translating that cultural identity into a political project is more complicated. Um, I think that there were specific issues, uh, certainly in that first assembly, uh, that relate to something that you mentioned earlier, and that's the question of immigration into Wales. Uh, you know, the fact that the that the problematic aspects of that immigration were raised by a Plaid Cymru councillor. Um, I, 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 I think that that caused quite serious difficulties, actually, among English-speaking people in Wales who had been um, warm to us by Cymru and spurted Cymru in the past. I think they became I think they became suspicious of Plaid Cymru as a as a result of that, and I don't think uh, that we handled it particularly uh, well at the time. And it took some time to recover from that, actually. I think, you know, we're we're over that now. I think we are recovered from that. Um, And the other thing, of course, which is what the pundits tell me, is that um, Roger Morgan and others are quite successfully at branding Labour in Wales as Welsh Labour. I really don't think there's much substance behind the branding. Um, But people had a sense that Labour could lead Wales uh, through the process of self-government, whereas the Scottish Labour Party um, were perceived as being you know, less enthusiastic about it and all that kind of thing. So there's a sum of the factors. Uh, the question is, I think, isn't it, where Plaid Cymru goes from here? And my feeling is that there are really serious possibilities for the growth of Plaid Cymru over the, over the coming years. What spooked Plaid Cymru, of course, is Corbyn, isn't it? The change of the Labour Party, so that Plaid Cymru's position to the left of, of Labour uh, was attractive to many people in Wales. It's difficult to be left of Labour when it's led by Jeremy Corbyn, whom I knew very well, by the way. Was very friendly with when I was in was in Parliament, but be that as it may, uh, we're now in a position, aren't we? Though, where we see Labour having been in effect in power in Wales for most of a century, uh, Labour has run Wales practically for a century, and it's been in unbroken power uh, in a self-governing Wales since 1999. And the only credible alternative to that, I've got to say, the only credible alternative to that is Plaid Cymru. I mean, UKIP are a spent force. The Lib Dems are now are no longer a significant player in Welsh politics. I don't think that's going to change. Uh, and um, um, I don't think the Conservatives have any kind of really serious dynamic vision for the future of Wales. Plaid Cymru does. And the kind of work that Plaid Cymru has done on policy development in recent years for the 2016 Assembly Manifesto, for example, is really impressive, actually. Um, so I think Plaid Cymru, as it approaches the 2021 election, is in a very good position uh, to challenge Labour as the dominant force in much politics.
the paradox, though, is, isn't it, that um, uh, by the nature of the electoral system, mm. it's very difficult for any single party to uh, get a majority. Mm. So the likelihood is, and of course we've seen this in the past, that if there were to be a serious challenge to Labour, if it were coming from mm. Plaid Cymru, mm. you'd have to have a coalition with the Conservatives. And that, of course, is anathema to a lot of people in Wales. Um, but I think you were in favour of a coalition with the Conservatives back in 2007, weren't you? The Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, because yeah. the Liberal Democrats then were, you know, a not insignificant presence in, in the National Assembly, and that would soften, <laughs> as it were, the the nature of the, of the coalition. Um, well, uh, yes, I was I was strongly in favour of that, and and I'd advocated it actually before before the election, before the opportunity arose, and I was disappointed by the fact that Plaid decided to go in as a junior coalition partner rather than the leading coalition partner in what was called at the time the Rainbow Alliance. I think it's actually understandable that Plaid Cymru decided to do what it did, and Plaid Cymru made a very good. Uh, um, made a very good contribution to uh, government in the in in the next years in the One Wales coalition. Um, I mean, now I think it's quite clear that Plaid Cymru itself has to construct a coalition within Wales, a, a pretty broad coalition within Wales for itself in the first place. I don't like phrases like the centre ground and so on, but, but Plaid Cymru has to appeal right across the board to people in Wales, Welsh-speaking, English-speaking, Indigenous Welsh, in-migrant English, all of these uh, in favour of progressive change, because change is what we need in Wales, isn't it? After it's going to be 20 years of unbroken Labour government since 1999. There's got to be a coalition for change, and Plaid Cymru has to appeal right across the board. And if it does that, and I think it can do that, bearing in mind the kind of kind of leadership that we've got in Plaid Cymru, because I think if you look at the Assembly group as, as a group, and if you look at the Westminster group of MPs, you've got a very, very impressive array of talent there, actually. And I think that leadership, that collective leadership, could bring about this broad-based appeal, I think. When it comes to the election itself and and the outcome of the election, I think that Plaid Cymru ought to keep uh, all options open. It's all about the programme. It's all about what different political parties could agree as the programme for government for the following five years. It's not about them. Um, any particular political tradition being anathema. That's that's childish politics, isn't it, really? That's old-fashioned, tribalist, childish politics. It's got to be about what do we intend to do if we form a government? And I think, you know, Plaid Cymru can contribute, you know, impressively, actually, to uh, a programme for government. The, the 2016... Uh, manifesto, which I'm extremely enthusiastic about, 
uh, I keep on uh, referring to this whenever I go, uh, was a programme for 10 years, actually, a 10-year programme for government. And, you know, implementing the kinds of suggestions that are made in that manifesto would be transformative, I think. You need to have some eye-catching policies, don't you? Mm -hmm. Uh, What can you think of or what exists that would actually attract more people to vote for Plaid Cymru, do you think? I think I'm going to pass on that, Martin, to be perfectly honest. I'm not, I'm not sufficiently involved in, uh, in, in, in the debate or in policy construction that I can give you an off-the-cuff answer on that. Give me two days, I might end up with something. But it would have to be something pretty impressive, wouldn't it? Because... Well, I think I think I, look. It's like I don't think it's it maybe eye-catching ideas. If you're talking about specific policy proposals, eye-catching ideas of that kind, yes, they may be helpful. But it's the overarching vision that's the really important thing. And there are there, there, I, I keep on saying to myself and saying to others who are prepared to listen to me that, that the applied company vision has to be in the first place inspiring. It's got to be inspiring. Um, it's got to inspire its own members in the first place to activism, to working hard, to organisation and all that kind of thing. It's got to be inspiring. Secondly, it's got to be, it's got to be realistic. It's got to, be, it's got to convince people that the kind of ideas that we're suggesting could actually be implemented over a five or ten year period. These are practical, realistic things. And the third thing is that it's got to be unthreatening. I think there's an element... People have perceive an element of threat in Plaid Company as a party that's really about shaking things up so uh, so radically, so fundamentally as to destabilize life. You know, and uh, I think that's I think it's a false perception, but I think it's a real it's it's a it's a perception that people have. So that idea of unthreatening, I think, is important. One other thing, then, this is about Britain. Ply Cymru, I think, needs now to speak about Britain in positive terms. In the Welsh nationalist tradition, Britain has been seen as the threat, as the obstacle. You're either British or you're Welsh. And the interests of Wales are contrary to the interests of Britain as an entity. I think that comes from the perception of Britain as the home of empire, the British Empire, and Great Britain, the dominant, you know, force in world politics and that kind of thing. Following Brexit, I think all that's going to change, actually. Britain is going to have to come down a couple of pegs as a result of the Brexit process, completely contrary to what the Brexiteers themselves think. Now, I think Plaid Cymru should speak constructively about the reconstruction of Britain as a different kind of place. Britain is an abiding reality. It's an abiding entity. And Plaid Cymru needs to contribute to the debate about what kind of Britain it is that we need for the future. And fundamentally, it's going to be about a partnership of nations equal in status, if not in size, if not in strength, equal in status and equal in respect. So we're talking about reconstructing Britain. We're not talking about abolishing Britain. We're talking about reconstructing it. Whether or not the nations within that new construction will be technically independent or not 
isn't the real issue. The important issue is how they work together, how they develop their own particular identities and interests at the same time as living in in a kind of partnership and in amity with the other components. But there are those who would say that your aspiration for the nations to coexist uh, on the basis of equality is unrealistic because inevitably England would be the dominant partner. England will always be the dominant presence uh, in Britain because of its size, of course. And we're going to have to live with that. And even if Wales were independent and Scotland were independent, England would still be dominant. That's the fact of the matter. We've got to live with that and we've got to assert, uh, nevertheless, Wales's own particular perspective and its own interests in relation to that and build into any constitutional arrangements compensatory factors so that in any constitutional arrangements there would have to be waiting as it were in favour of the smaller nations so that their voices uh, would have to be respected and recognised. Can you see England agreeing to that? I've got the slightest idea, but uh, uh, that, that is what we should aspire to, isn't it? This, this is the vision that we should present to the people. It's that kind of vision that we need to present to the people. Whether people will respond to it, of course, is another matter. But, you know, I've got enough... Yes, I mean, I've got enough um, confidence in, in the English at their best. Oh, yes. To believe that they would respond positively to that. I'm, I am, after all, I was for a long time a student of English literature. Martin, I read Wordsworth and uh, Shakespeare and all these people and absolutely loved. Uh, I mean, in that sense, I, I can say that I love the English tradition. And in that sense, too, I uh, would hope that that English tradition would find expression in working in this, these kinds of new arrangements I'm talking about. Thank you very much indeed, Colonel Davis. Excellent to talk to you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.